All right, and amen. Uh, in our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, this morning we get to what has been widely considered over the centuries to be the least important and the least practical of Jesus' six antitheses, what we've been calling the antitheses, each of which uh, begins with Jesus saying something like this, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, you have heard that it was said, and then Jesus quotes a passage from the Old Testament or from Moses from the law. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, asserting his authority to speak a new word into the scriptures. This morning, we will read that the fourth of Jesus' six antitheses, as I said, the one that's been considered the least important and probably the most, uh, or the least practical and the most understood. Uh, it's not gotten much airtime in Christian teaching. It's been misunderstood. It's nevertheless, uh, nevertheless both important and practical. Uh, so let's begin with prayer. Join me. God, as we open your word together this morning, uh, give us fresh eyes, new uh, ears, help us to see, hear, to know, and uh, by your grace and uh, with the power of your spirit to become the sort of people that you would have us become. Bring about your kingdom uh, upon us and among us and in us. Uh, do that which we cannot do ourselves. Help us. We confess our sin again and our brokenness, our need for you at every point along the way. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be completely forgotten. In the name and in the character and in the way of Jesus. Amen. Jesus began his public ministry calling people to repent because the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens, same thing. Uh, because the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens had come near. Repent. You remember we talked about change your mind, change your ways, change your thinking, change your life, change the course of things. Think again, reconsider about sin and about the rest of your life. Repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God has come near in a new way, in a powerful way. It is available and it is accessible in a way that it maybe has never been before. And then Jesus announced that lots of different kinds of people and people in different situations who were doing and experiencing various different things were all blessed, one after another. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are you, you and you. Not because of anything they had done or earned or merited, but because of the goodness and the graciousness and the beauty of God himself and his sovereign will to bless. And Jesus announced that those who were presently apprenticing with him, who were learning from him, these now only mere fishermen, uneducated men, and a few others, not the religiously beautiful, not those who had been well healed in religious culture, but simple, common people who were learning from Jesus, apprenticing with him and discipling with him, they of all people would be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the people through whom God would save, through whom he would heal, through whom he would preserve the entire world, those whom, through whom God would illuminate and guide these mere people. And it must have sounded like sheer madness, and because of these sorts of things that Jesus was saying and that Jesus was doing so out of step with the religious culture of his time. Those who were in power among their religious began to accuse Jesus of disregarding and even rejecting their scriptures, which were also his scriptures. To which Jesus responded by saying, do not think that I've come to abolish the law, but instead I've come to fulfill it. I have not come to abolish it, but I've come in a variety of ways to fill it up, to complete it. 
And then Jesus announced that he would introduce to his followers and all who would listen a new and better kind of goodness or righteousness or good life in God's kingdom that would far surpass the righteousness of those who were considered most righteous in their world and their culture that day, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes. And then Jesus jumped right into these deeper things, beginning to teach one after another about anger and about lust and about divorce and things that mattered and were very practical in people's lives. And this morning we get to the verse or the passage where he talks about oaths, which are not so common in our world today. We don't uh, speak a lot of oaths as they did back then and had been common for centuries in a variety of different ways. They leaned on as a culture and as a people of various different kinds of oaths that were uh, visualized, that were enacted in ways of dividing, cutting a bull in half and walking down the middle of it, putting one's hand underneath another person's thigh uh, in order to announce and pronounce it. We just don't do those sorts of things, but oaths and the principle and ideas behind them are still with us today. So beginning at Matthew chapter five, verse 33, listen closely. This is the word of God through the son of God, Jesus. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In Jesus' first antithesis, where he talks about anger and murder, he begins by quoting from the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. In Jesus' second antithesis, where Jesus talks about lust and adultery, Jesus again begins by quoting from the Ten Commandments, the very heart of the Jewish law and revelation. In his third antithesis, where Jesus talks about adultery and divorce, Jesus again begins by quoting from the Ten Commandments, the very heart of the Jewish law. And now in verse 33, Jesus begins, again, you have heard it, it was said to those of old. But what follows is not a quote from one of Moses' laws. What follows is not a quote from any particular passage of scripture in the Old Testament, but rather what seems to be a summary or a collection of a variety of precepts and truths and laws that were all over what we call the Old Testament. To... to uh, to make vows regarding to making the vows and the keeping of those vows. And an example of one such command that fits into Jesus' summary is actually the third of the Ten Commandments, which reads like this. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. If you weren't with us this morning, we began with reciting and speaking the Ten Commandments together. You may remember the third of those commandments. You shall not misuse the name which represented the very essence of a person's being. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And what this commandment referred to was the making of vows, promises, and oaths, and attaching God's name to those vows, promises, and oaths in order to give those vows, promises, and or oaths validity and strength and authority. I swear in the name of the Lord God that I will work two extra hours per day for the rest of the week if you will just let me get off of work today, Monday at noon. 
I swear by the Lord God that if you will forgive me this one time for burning your dinner, that it will never happen again. I swear in the name of the Holy One of Israel that I did not steal your brother's sheep or whatever it may be. And so the third commandment in the Big Ten wasn't so much against making vows, promises, and oaths, but against not fulfilling vows, promises, and oaths made in the name of the Lord God because doing so, doing such, defamed the holiness of the name of God on whom one was calling. It defamed the name of God, and thus God would say, anyone who defames my name in such a way will not go unpunished. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And again, Jesus says in verse 33, chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make, you have no power, you cannot make a hair either black or white. And so we see what this basically ubiquitous practice of swearing, not saying four-letter words, but making vows, promises, and oaths in a certain way. And so we see that this basically ubiquitous practice of swearing had become what it had become. People were making vows and taking oaths, not only in the name of God, but also by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem. And some might say today, as some might say today, I swear on my mother's And each of these oaths had different degrees of seriousness, of rigor, of credibility, of integrity. To, to take an oath in the name of the Lord God was the most sacred of oaths. And along with that went the strictest consequences for not fulfilling that oath or that vow. And then there were lesser things that a person could swear on. Heaven, Jerusalem, a king, alive or dead, a prophet, an angel the temple, one's house, and so on. And each step down had with it a lower bar of sorts with regard to the value or the credibility or the trustworthiness that a person who actually was making this vow, promise, or oath would have to the point that what had been established in the culture as a whole was this whole rubric and tier system of different kinds and different values of oaths, and so along with that different permission to not fulfill certain vows and oaths. The greater the vow or oath in the name of the Lord God, the more serious it was, the greater the expectation was of a person's integrity, and it better be fulfilled. But then there were these other vows, promises, oaths, all the way down to the ones that you just barely can believe and trust a person in. That was their religious system, and along comes Jesus announcing the arrival and the availability of God's kingdom and promising abundance and describing a righteousness or a goodness that far surpassed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and their way of doing religion. The Pharisees whom he called simply pretenders, hypocrites, actors, thespians. And so with regard to their practices and traditions surrounding the making of oaths, Jesus said, enough, no more. 
And he said that to them and he says it to us, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more comes from evil. And what did Jesus mean exactly when he said in verse 33, do not take an oath at all. The church through the centuries has really struggled with this passage. It's a difficult one and has been for centuries for people to interpret. Do we take Jesus literally here? Do we never take any oath at all? Do we completely end that practice? Do we never make promises? Do we never take vows? That seems to be at face value on the surface what Jesus says. And over the centuries, how the church has understood that and practiced that has varied greatly to the point that more recently we simply accept the taking of vows and don't think a lot about it. It's become normative practice. The church over history has varied greatly, as have streams. You go, and most Quakers today, who are in their way trying to follow Jesus, when called to court, will not swear, but will simply affirm. What we know, however, is that the mere existence of oaths proves there are lies. And nobody likes that word. Nobody wants me to say liar or suggest that any of us ever lies. But, in the word of John Stott, swearing, and of course this means not saying four-letter words but taking oaths. In the words of John Stott, swearing really is a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. Why do we find it necessary to introduce our promises by some tremendous formula? I swear by the archangel, archangel Gabriel and all the host of heaven, or I swear by the Holy Bible. The only reason is that we know our simple word alone is not likely to be trusted. So we try to induce, induce people to believe us by adding a solemn oath. That's the way it's gone all through history in varying degrees, but still today in some ways. When someone, like a child, says, I cross my heart, I hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, do we believe them any more than we would have if they hadn't said that at all? Not really. With that oath, do their words really become more trustworthy? Do they become more trustworthy? Do they become a different sort of person or people? No. Immanuel Kant, in his religion within the bounds of reason alone, was famously scathing about oaths. Oaths are pure superstition because they naively believe that a person who cannot be trusted to tell the truth can be persuaded to speak truthfully by use of a formula. Ridiculous. Kant apparently, like Jesus, feared that one bad effect of oaths is that the greater importance given to oaths almost sanctions the common lie almost says it's okay because we take all of these oaths that it kind of validates when we don't use those oaths, untruth and the freedom to lie. Which is probably much more ubiquitous, the common lie, than the common cold. People lie, that's how people are. Not us, but other people. <laughs> Think about it, children, any of you who have raised children or taught Children, been around children, cared for children. Children are not taught to lie. 
They just lie by nature at times, as do adults. When it's advantageous to do so, or out of fear, or to gain something, or to not suffer something. How easy, natural, smooth it can be sometimes, and maybe more so for some people, to not tell the truth. How many of you with children have ever taken or ever took your child somewhere, children somewhere, where there was an entrance fee? In in other words, for example, at a movie theater or amusement park or a museum, and you fudged your kids' ages a bit because the entry fee was different for adults than it was for children under a certain age. Anyone ever done that? Anyone ever been tempted to do that? Appreciate the honesty up here, up here, back there, indeed. Johnny, today you're going to be 12. (laughs) Susie, today you're 11. Got it? Some of us have done that. No one in the back left, but (laughs) some of us. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Or each year when you sign your tax return, even if it's only an electronic signature, it doesn't really seem to count when it's an electronic signature, does it? Because anybody could be doing it. It's just a box. You can do it in the dark when you actually sign it. It doesn't even look like your signature. When you file your tax return each year, do you realize that you are making a vow or a promise or an oath? Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Some of you who fish have actually caught the big one. You really have caught the big one. Fishermen, fisherwomen are known for sometimes exaggerating the size, weight, length of their fish, right? Oh, man, this thing was huge. Show me a photo. That's a minnow, brother. (laughs) But this is the world in which we live, we say, and justify in ourselves. We live in a world of exaggeration and embellishment. It's just the water in which we swim. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. We know that when companies market their products to us, most of us know, you should know, that they're often not telling us the whole truth about their product. We know that salesmen's words may not be gold when we go to buy a car or especially a used car. Those are the unwritten rules. We live in a world in which the truth is regularly bent for one's own advantage and where people bend the truth themselves as they or we manage our own images. We know that politicians often dance with the truth. We have had dental work that maybe didn't really need to be done. We've been to the tire store and been told that we absolutely need a whole new set of tires right then today, and then go to another store the next day, another tire store where they say, you're good for another 20,000 miles, no problem. There are pastors who only tell us what we want to hear or who refrain from telling us what we don't want to hear. People as bright, well-educated, and in the public eye as Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos fame or infamy almost can't help from fabricating truth. We're surrounded by spin doctors. Sometimes we are the spin doctors. And so we have contracts, and so we have lawyers, and so we have courts where we are asked and required to promise, vow, take an oath, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And the only reason a person is more likely to tell the real truth 
in such a context or situation is not due to the mentioning of God in their vow or the Bible on which they may have placed their hand, but because the consequences of oneself not telling the truth and being found out in such a situation is something called perjury, which most law codes include and comes with some jail time and a nice fine, and so is no fun and we avoid. But God wants people who are recovering from the fall. God wants people who are recovering from the fall, who are being redeemed, who are through the power of his spirit being transformed, and he has made himself available to help in that regard to offer us and to welcome us into a new kind of goodness or righteousness that surpasses the empty legalism of the Pharisees. And Jesus' instructions for living in God's kingdom bring about transformation from the depths, in the depths, in contrast to the simply outward righteousness of those Pharisees, Jesus invites us into a different kind of goodness. But it can be scary. Be done with those vows and everything like that, Jesus says. There's no need to write God into one's words and language. God's already present. Little secret for you. God's already present. Fully, everywhere. All through life and every activity of life, he hears not only the words which are spoken in his name, he hears all words and they cannot be There cannot be such a thing as a form of words which evades bringing God into a transaction. We think, oh, we only bring God into a transaction when we put our hand on the Bible or when we speak his name. Not so. He's already there. Everything is spiritual. All promises are sacred because all promises are made in the presence of God. Life can't be divided into compartments and some of which God is involved and others of which he is not involved and some of which he sees and others of which he doesn't see. There cannot be one kind of language in the church and another kind of language at home or in the workplace. It just, it doesn't work. God's back there as much as he's up here. Yes? And so whether one makes oaths, which most of us will do if we ever serve on a jury or find ourselves on a witness stand, or vows, which people do when or if they get married. And so whether one takes an oath or makes a vow or makes a promise or is asked or required by the law of the land to swear something, Jesus calls people to simply, to a simple yet profoundly important truthfulness in all things and integrity. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. In the grace of God, be done with trying to manipulate people with your words. Often to use the other person or to get what we want or an outcome that we want. Instead, as the Apostle Paul wrote, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth, but in love, with love, through love, which is Jesus' goal. Jesus is concerned in all of these, directly or indirectly, in the Sermon on the Mount with love. And a part of love is always truthfulness. Jesus is concerned here with complete truthfulness. Just let that soak in for just a moment. The abolition of oaths in itself is no guarantee that truth will be told. Indeed, such may only lead to its concealment. Oaths or no oaths, we have seen, may or may not affect truthfulness. 
But hear these words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Jesus' commandment of complete truthfulness is really only another name for the totality of discipleship. Jesus' commandment of complete truthfulness is really only another name for the totality of discipleship. In other words, if you can't tell the truth, if you can't live in the truth fully, openly, all the time, you really can't follow Jesus, be in Christ. He continues, only those who follow Jesus and cleave to him are living in complete truthfulness. Such people have nothing to hide from their Lord. If you're living a life of hiding, then you can't live that in with Jesus. Their life is revealed before them, Bonhoeffer continues. Jesus has recognized them and leads them into the way of truth. He is truth. They cannot hide their sinfulness from Jesus, for they have not revealed themselves to Jesus. But he has revealed himself to them by calling them to follow him. Only those who are in a state of truthfulness through the confession of their sin to Jesus, which is why we started that way this morning. Only those who are in a state of truthfulness through the confession of their sin to Jesus are not ashamed to tell the truth wherever it must be told. In other words, if you can't as a starting point confess your sin, your brokenness, your need, your depravity, your insufficiency on your own, as a starting point, you've really got nowhere left to go. The truthfulness which Jesus demands from his followers is the self-abnegation which does not hide sin. Nothing is then hidden. Everything is brought forth to the light of day. Jesus is interested in complete truthfulness. And then finally this from Bonhoeffer. The cross is God's truth about us. The cross is God's truth about us. And therefore, it is the only power which can make us truthful. When we know the cross, we're no longer afraid of the truth. When we know the cross, we're no longer afraid of the truth or any truth. We need no more oaths to confirm the truth of our utterances, for we live in the perfect truth of God. There is no truth toward Jesus without truth toward other people, he writes. Untruthfulness destroys fellowship, but truth cuts false fellowship to pieces and establishes genuine brotherhood and sisterhood fellowship. We cannot follow Christ unless we live and reveal truth before God and one another. Jesus doesn't call us to say things that are inappropriate or that are too self-disclosing to the wrong kinds of people. But he does call us, and no, he invites us into a way of being through the grace of his cross that many of us have never entered into, where there is freedom to speak truth, freedom to acknowledge truth, freedom to live in open truthfulness. And Jesus says he implies that therein is God's kingdom, and only therein. You cannot see, experience, or enter God's kingdom apart from a radical and sometimes painful truthfulness. But when we do, by his grace, with his help, his kingdom is fully available to us and to all who will have him. Let's pray. God, you are truth, 
and you being truth will, as we come to know and embrace you, set us free. You will set us free. Help us to be people who don't dance with words or use them to manipulate others, who don't run from truth, hide from truth, fear truth, but instead with the courage that comes from knowing and hearing and embracing and welcoming your promises of grace and goodness, of mercy and forgiveness. May we be people who experience the joy of living in a truthful yes is yes and no is no world, in our relationships, in our ministry, in the church, and in the world. And in all of this, may you be glorified and we be satisfied. Amen.